Um, Today's preaching passages from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, all the way to chapter 18, verse 27. Um, And so I'm going to be reading a few excerpts from this, um, Exodus chapter 15 to 18, 27, um, as Baxter comes to preach. Exodus 15, 22 to 18, 27. I'll read first from 15, 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Then when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now moving to chapter 17, verses 8 to 13. There Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek with his peop- and his people with the sword. And then chapter 18, starting in verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people of the Egyptians out of the hand and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, "'What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone?' And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. 
You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Dan. Thanks to our music team for leading us this evening. Let's pray before we dive into our passage. Heavenly Father, I ask that you give me words to speak with boldness and clarity tonight. Continue to conform us, College Church, into the image of your Son for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to talk about the other side of victory. The other side of victory. That's what I want to talk about. This past week in Chicago, uh, downtown in the city, you may have heard that Chicago's professional women's basketball team, they're called the Chicago Sky, won their first national championship ever. And so they celebrated with a championship parade. And the parade went down Michigan Avenue and it settled at Millennium Park. And if you were to arrive upon the scene, I wasn't there, but from what I read and from what I saw, there was an ecstatic crowd, there was blasting music, there were people dancing and singing, and it's the type of celebration you would expect from, from a people who are celebrating the most significant victory they've ever experienced. Our text today is a long text. It's chapter 1522 to 1827, but it comes on the heels of a similar celebration. In the beginning of chapter 15, we read a resounding song of salvation. And it was sung by the people of God, by Moses, by Miriam. The scene that we're given was one of dancing, singing, tambourine playing. Why? Because they have just experienced the most significant victory in their history as a people. And so at such a high point in the narrative, the Israelites wonder, what's on the, what's on the other side of this victory? What's, what's ahead for us? Look at chapter 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Never has their confidence been so high in God. They fear him. They believe him. They know that God can do anything for them. And that's why what comes next must have been surprising for them. God takes them from 
the championship parade, if you will, in chapter 15, verse 21, to training camp in chapter 15, verse 22. It's an abrupt switch. Yes, they've been delivered, but they have yet to arrive at the destination. And we see that this salvation, although effective, it's not complete. It's not finished. And the path ahead for the Israelites is a difficult one. Where's this path going? God takes them in this text from the sea to Sinai. That is what bookends our text today. From leaving the victory at the Red Sea to the arrival at Sinai and the giving of the law, the scene that we have in chapter 19 and chapter 20. And so our text is nestled in between and there's five scenes. And as much as I would like to dive into each of these scenes, we do not have the time to give an individual sermon for each scene. They'll lock us in here with the doors. And so since we're packaging them together, I'd like us to reflect on how these scenes from the sea to Sinai, how they work together. What do they have to teach, to instruct the people of God? And so here's my sermon in a sentence in response to that. Here it is. Trust in God's formation when living between deliverance and destination. I'm going to say that again. Trust in God's formation when living between deliverance and destination. That's what I believe this text is doing as a whole. And there are three movements, or the way I like to think about it, three stations, okay? If you're thinking about training camp, these are three stations that God walks them through. And in each of them, a need of the people is exposed. This is not a flattering text for the people of Israel. A need is exposed, it is met, and I believe it is done so for the purpose of forming or shaping the people. And so practically, these, these three sections, the way that we could maybe hang something on each section, a title for it, in chapter 15, verses 22, to chapter 17, verse 7, I'm going to call a need for provision. A need for provision is exposed. In chapter 17, verse 8, to chapter 17, verse 16, we see a need for protection. A need for protection is exposed. And then in chapter 18, the whole chapter, verse 1 through 27, a need for preparation, a need for preparation is exposed. The gap between deliverance and destination begins with God exposing the needs of his people. Provision, protection, and preparation. So let's take a look at the first one. If you have your Bible, make sure um, you're looking at chapter 15. We're starting in verse 22. A need for provision. What we have here are three different stories chronologically told and given with three different locations. And what these locations are showing us is the movement pattern of the people of Israel. They are moving farther away from the sea, closer to Sinai. And in each of these scenes, we're reading about some consistent 
troubles and themes that the narrator is drawing out. Now, the narrator has given us historical fact in the Bible. This, this happened, but this is also selective history. And we need to remember that as we're reading Exodus. The journey from Egypt to Sinai lasted about three months. And so while much is recorded here, there is much more that is left out and not recorded. And so the scenes that are included are the ones that are chosen to help illustrate something. And so I want us to be thinking, what are the commonalities, especially of these first three stories in this first section? And so look at verse 22, chapter 15. The people arrive at the wilderness of Mara looking for water. And what they find is that the water is too bitter to drink. They cannot consume it. And get this, we're told it only took three days, three days from the singing of verse 21 and the suffering they experience in verse 22 until they begin to complain and grumble against Moses in verse 24. What has God been doing for us lately? Three days. So they complain to Moses in verse 24, and Moses responds by crying out to God, who shows him a log, and Moses throws it into the bitter water, and the bitter water is turned sweet. And the second half of verse 25, let's read this together. It goes on to say, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. So God exposes their need. He exposes a need for water. He provides it for them, and we're told he tests them. He tests them to rely on and to listen to his word, to his instruction. That's what the narrator's drawing out for us in this first scene. I want to keep moving. Look at chapter 16. What are the commonalities here? We're told of another location. The people travel to the wilderness of sin. And the grumbling returns again in verse 2. This time they're grumbling, not over lack of water, we're told, but over lack of food. And they complain, and the complaint is that we would rather have died in Egypt with food than in the wilderness without it. And so what does God do? He hears their grumbling, and he speaks to Moses, and he outlines a test. We're starting to hear some of the patterns here. And the test is to determine whether or not the people will walk according to his law. And this is the test. He tells Moses he will rain down bread from the heavens and the people are to gather a day's portion each day. And they're not to store any additional for the next day, but they're to rely on God's provision from that day for that day. However, on the sixth day, they are to gather twice as much and store that extra amount for the seventh day. And the question is why? Look at verse 23. Because we're told in verse 23 
that the seventh day is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So not only does God say he will provide the bread in the morning, but he says, you know what? I will provide the meat in the evening as well. And so look at verse 12. It says, so that, as verse 12 says, that they might know that he is the Lord, that he is their God. What are we seeing? God's provision, his sustenance for his people is being intimately tied to living under his word and his rule. And so how does it play out? The test has been set up. What happens? Verse 13 tells us that the quail, that God sent quail, so the meat came just like God said it would. And then the bread rains down from heaven just like God said it would. Now will the people follow his instructions? This is an evaluative moment for the people of Israel. And what we find is they they don't in verse 20. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. So they leave some left over. Then in verse 24, to be fair, it seems that they do obey. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And then if we look at verse 27, it seems they disobey again. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Three opportunities outlined. Two times they disobey, one time they obey. I'm no math expert, but that's 33% success rate for obedience. And 33% was never a passing grade in the schools that I went to. (laughs) Maybe your schools. (laughs) Not mine. The test has been failed. And not only that, but we're provided one more scene directly following this, and it's escalated, this scene, some of the patterns that we're seeing are escalated in 17, 1 through 7. There's one more location listed. They arrive at Rephidim. There is no water to drink again. And again, they grumble and they quarrel with Moses. And Moses says to them, why do you test God? What's happening here? is the pupil is now testing the teacher. That's the absurdity that the text is showing. The Lord speaks to Moses in verse 5, and he still graciously gives him instructions to follow. And he tells him to strike the rock at Horeb, and water will will come out of it. And he says, I will stand before you there on the rock, and Moses does so. So we've seen these three stories, we've walked through them, but what are we to understand from them? God purposefully leads his people in this text into places that expose their needs. That's what's happening here. Now, why would God do that? Doesn't he care about these people? 
And the answer is it is precisely because he cares that he's teaching, training, testing, he's forming them. Where the people respond with grumbling, God responds with teaching and testing. Could it be that the thing that you and I are tempted to grumble about the most is the very thing that God would purposefully use to teach us, to train us, to form us, to shape us, to receive his word, and to look for him for provision. In this first training session, these three stories, we see the people's exposed need for provision. And in each case, their needs are met by a gracious God. And they are continually directed to listen to him and to follow his instruction. That's the first training session, but the text continues to move. And the question is, what is the narrator showing us? The training session moves from a need for provision to what I want to call a need for protection. A need for protection is exposed. Look at chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. What's happening here is that Amalek comes onto the scene to fight with Israel and Moses goes to the top of the mountain with the staff of God in his hand and he raises his hands during the battle while Joshua is down on the ground fighting with the other men. What's interesting about this is you would think that the camera would zoom in on the battle and tell you about what's happening and how they're advancing, where they're pushing the enemy back, or where the enemy is advancing on them. But instead, if this was a documentary, the camera zooms in on Moses on the mountain. It's fixated on his hands. And it says in verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I love this scene because it's, it's, it's quite humorous in a way. Just the, the need, the exposure of Moses needing help. They push a rock underneath of him so he can sit on it and have support. And two come around him to keep his hands raised. Isn't it curious, though, that there is this need for protection for the people? God, the same God who demonstrated his power to clog up the wheels of the Egyptians in chapter 14, allows his people to be attacked after this great victory that they've just had. The battles were not just behind them. They were also before them and in front of them. This is a people, Israel, that's living in the gap between this deliverance, this amazing deliverance and rescue, and still some final or ultimate destination that they're moving towards. And whether or not we can understand what exactly Moses was doing? Was he praying? Was he not? There's, there's a lot of different opinions. But what we do know is that the text makes it clear 
that the victory over the enemy was not tied to the performance of those fighting, but the movement of Moses' hands. There was something greater at play here. God exposed his people's need for protection. Why would he do that? The same reason he exposed their need for provision. So that they might be trained and formed to look to him to meet this need. That they might listen to him and know that he is their God. It's not just provision. It's not just protection. This is a long text. There's one more training session that we've seen that we see, and it's, it's preparation. God exposes a need of preparation in chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, hears of all that God has done for Israel, and he journeys to Moses, and he's bringing, we're told, Moses' wife and his children back to him. And Moses greets his father-in-law and tells him, look at verse 8 of chapter 18. He tells him of all that the Lord has done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that has come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro, the Midianite, the outsider, the foreigner, rejoices and worships God for his deliverance. It's this outsider, now insider, that in the second half of chapter 18 takes the lead and gives wisdom to Moses and the people. He sees Moses sitting one day and he is sitting all day making known the statutes of God and his laws. It says in verse 17 that Jethro responded and said, what you are doing, Moses, is not good. Some advice from his father-in-law. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. God uses this outsider to expose the shortcomings, the needs of Moses. You'd think Moses' ego, he could say, I'm, I'm Moses. I'm the guy God chose to use. You just figured out all that's happened. You've just started to serve and worship this God and you're going to tell me how to manage the people? No, God uses Jethro to provide wisdom to set up a system where it says that trustworthy men are assigned as chiefs over the people to judge them at all times. Matters of great importance would go up to Moses and everything else would be judged by these chiefs. God exposes a need through the foreigner and provides a practical solution that will prepare them to efficiently administer the law of God among the people. So there's a lot here in this text. But what I think all of this shows us at a broad level is that God has a purpose for his people in this season. He's training them. He's forming them. It's like an owner trains a dog, training the dog to hear the sound of his voice and to respond so that the dog knows that he's to listen to the owner for provision, for protection, for preparation of what's next. God is training his people 
but the training, as we can see, is not easy. Growing up, I had a neighbor that had a dog. My family was not a dog family, but we vicariously lived through other people who had dogs. And they had this dog who was not very obedient. He did not enjoy being told what to do. And so they signed him up for dog school. And I remember looking out the window on the first day of dog school, and there was my neighbor holding the leash, and there was the dog on all fours in the alley, not willing to be moved, completely obstinate, collapsed. Needless to say, this dog failed dog school. (laughs) They said this dog was untrainable, which I had never heard before. But that's sometimes how it feels for us. That's how it feels when the Lord is training us or putting us in these difficult positions. We want to collapse on all fours and grumble and complain and be obstinate and say, you know what? No, Lord, I do not. I will not go there. Or I will not share the gospel with that person. That's too hard. That will rock too many parts of the boat of our relationship. God, why have you put me in this position? But the Bible talks about God like a potter and his people like clay. And in a sense, what God is doing here is he's taken the clay out of Pharaoh's hands. He's taken it by his strong and mighty hand and he takes the clay and he puts it on the wheel and he starts spinning the wheel and he presses into the clay. And he forms it. He's forming the clay. He's shaping the clay. He wants to shape his people. And so maybe you're here tonight and you're not pleased with God because circumstantially things are more difficult than they seem to need to be in your life. I don't want to minimize what anyone may be going through here tonight, but let's not misinterpret the present moment that we live in. We are also living in the gap between deliverance and destination. And this text, I hope it comforts you because it normalizes the struggle and the work to be done while living in that tension. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these events and others in Exodus happened to them as an example but they were written down for who? For our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. God exposes our need of him in this life. And yes, that is painful. But in his mercy, he does this so that we might turn to him and find instruction from him and provision from him in his word. He's training us to trust him and in him alone. Well, what gives God the right to to treat us like that? What gives God the right to press into us like clay? His love that he demonstrated for us gives him that right. Jesus Christ is our provision. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Jesus Christ is our protection. Ephesians, that we've been meditating on in the morning services, tells us to stand in the strength of his might. Jesus Christ is our preparation. He is at work preparing a people, preparing college church. Jesus says, I will. Not I might, but I will build my church. God has exposed and met our greatest need, the penalty for our sin, through, through the death of Jesus on the cross. And we have greater reason to trust God then, to trust him in the present than the Israelites did in the Old Testament. We have greater reason because Christ has already come. He has given us his spirit here. We have his word And so the glaring warning of this text that needs to be said today for all of us to hear is the heightened words of Paul. Woe to us who reject this instruction. If we have greater reason to trust because we have been given all these things and they've been made known to us, then our neglect is even more offensive. Woe to us who grumble after receiving this instruction. Woe to us who disregard the protection that's offered in Christ. And woe to us who disregard the need to be prepared as his church. May we not misinterpret our present circumstances as communicating God's absence or displeasure. No, this is for our instruction today. Trust in God's formation for you as you live between deliverance and final destination. The other side of the victory was not an easy place to be for Israel. That's very clear in this text. Likewise, It's not an easy place to be for us. That's very clear in our world today. But there is a shaping and a forming that needs to happen. And we need to remind ourselves that there is hope in the final and the final coming victory when Christ returns. Because on the other side of that victory is eternal celebration. So may we not misinterpret this moment and may we trust in God's formation as we live in that tension of deliverance and destination today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this instruction I pray that you supply us with such a vast knowledge of your love for us that it would strengthen us to persevere well. I pray that you would wake up those who are asleep. I pray that you would comfort those who are weak and in need of help. But I pray for all of us that we might turn to you in this life for our ongoing provision, ongoing protection, and ongoing preparation as you make us into your likeness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.